We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. He is able to help. We're going to read three verses together. If, you'd able, if you would stand to your feet, if you're able with us. Hebrews 2, 16 reads this way. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, Hebrews 2, 16, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.18. For since he, and the he is Jesus here, since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid or he is able to help those who are tempted. That's our title tonight. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we have such a clear text tonight about you are able to help. You are sympathetic, empathetic, merciful, and you've already helped us in the most grand way possible by entering into our pain, by living the perfect life that we can never live, by dying on a cross, resurrecting from the dead, and your current ministry to the believing uh, community, to the kingdom of God, is to intercede for your people. And the implication is that you never stop. Uh, and we're so grateful for that. And we don't understand everything that happens, but we do know this. The Bible says that you're our great high priest. Whoever lives to intercede for your people, you love your people. Father, you, lo you so loved us, you sent your son. It's the triune God that loves us. It's an overwhelming reality. It's a beautiful love. Thank you for that love, Lord. And whatever you want to teach us tonight, I pray that our ears would be open as you speak. For your glory in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. He is able to help. Well, if you know the backdrop of the Hebrew uh, church, it was a little Jewish congregation. Uh, most believe that they uh, were in Rome and that the uh, sparks of persecution had begun to fly around. Not to the point of anybody dying yet in that congregation, but threats, uh, perhaps, you know, being kicked out of certain places. No longer will I do business with you since you're a Christian. Some of you have heard that even conservatives in uh, countries like Canada, there are certain financial institutions that won't do business with them anymore. So just in case you thought this was far-fetched, this is the world today. You stand for certain things, you can be blackballed from certain institutions. That's the way the world is moving. That's the way it was in this first century. This little Jewish congregation who had opened their heart to Christ, at least had made a profession of faith, and then found it very tough sledding. As far as we know from the date of the book, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. The uh, customs of the synagogues that were all over the landscape were still there. Uh, there were a, a good amount of Jews that had received Jesus or opened their hearts, and then there were many of them that did not. Jesus was a controversial subject. He was a controversial person. The nation, you could say, was split way back at the time of Jesus. Some saying he is Messiah. Some saying he can't be the Messiah. Some people having this understanding of prophecy. Some people having this understanding of prophecy. And people began to experience very real pressure. Uh, what do I do now when family members disown me, when I'm kicked out of the synagogue, when I'm no longer welcome here, when this person doesn't want to do business with me anymore? 
And so this little church was facing difficulty. And the writer of Hebrews in 2.1 says, For this reason, if we look back just for a second, we must, pay, mu- we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Look at the warnings here. Verse 3, how will we escape? Escape what? That is judgment. If we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, that's Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders. We would imagine perhaps some of these readers experienced some signs and wonders by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so when this group of people were reeling and they were very human, just like all of us, they may have been asking questions like, can I continue to be a Christian? Have I truly counted the cost? Um, Maybe they said something like this, I didn't sign up for this. Or, you know, when we went through the COVID stuff, uh, there were some times when, you know, Christians in certain areas were getting a lot of persecution in Canada. Uh, You may remember, it wasn't that long ago that they put fences around a church in Canada and kept people from worshiping. Put a pastor in prison. Fine churches in Northern California for what? Opening the doors of the church to hurting people. So this is not far removed from even our most current uh, or recent reality. So a, a Christian may be saying, well, How can I know for sure, you know, how does God help us in times like these? In verse 9, just to look back again, he says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You're not alone. Jesus Christ did the same thing, walked the same path. In fact, he was the pioneer. For both he who sanctifies 11 and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of him saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me were one, were a family. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, they're human, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, He might render powerless or impotent him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Stop. Here's the issue. The first century church was in fear. Fear fear can be a very paralyzing reality, the fear of death. What? What's happening here is that some people might have been hearing, hey, they're threatening us. They're, you know, uh, there was a group of people who had made a commitment that they wouldn't eat or drink until Paul was dead. Uh, we know Stephen was martyred. We know there were, there were certainly some issues for the early church. And so fear uh, had come into the congregation, you could say. And fear can be 
kind of a strange thing. There, there, there can be people who, you know, uh, buck up under fear and uh, decide to stand strong and others who fall apart. And so uh, Jesus Christ comes. He shares our humanity, verse 14, to deliver those, look at verse 15, who through fear of death were subject to slavery or bondage all their lives. Uh, ESV has it this way, verse 15, lifelong slavery to the fear of dying. People who suffer lifelong slavery to the fear of dying. Now, if you were to walk around the city tomorrow and say, are you afraid to die? You afraid to die? <laughs> I think that the bulk of people who gave you an honest answer would say, yes, it terrifies me. Now think of someone who's outside of Christ. Think of someone who believes that after you die, the computer screen goes blank and it's all over. What a fearful thing. Here's an even more fearful thing. There was a, a man that was being, uh, he was facing the firing squads and he had become a Christian, but there was a threat of it a little bit before that when he was not a believer. And he said the more terrifying thing was not so much the firing squad because there would be pain and then it would be over, but what might happen after this, this life had ended. Uh, Dr. Walter Martin, who has since gone home to be with the Lord, died in the 80s, great apologist, said he met Muhammad Ali in an airport. And he was a boxing fan, so he went over and talked to Ali, and he said, don't worry, you know, I'm not going to ask for your autograph or be pushy or anything, but he goes, I'm a, I'm a great fight fan, and, you know, and he started talking to him about fighting, and he noticed that next to Ali was a copy of the Koran. And he says, yeah, I've been reading this. He said, uh, what do you think of this book? And Dr. Martin said, well, I don't think much of it, frankly. <laughs> he goes, you know, I believe in the Bible. I believe in the gospel. And he witnessed to him a little bit. And he said that Ali asked him, do you believe that there's a hell? And Martin said, yes, I do believe there's a hell because Jesus talked about it. And if Jesus talked about it, then there is a hell. And he said, you know, in that exchange, he witnessed a little bit to Muhammad Ali. What Ali did with it, only God knows. But here's the point. You can read quote after quote from Woody Allen. You can read quote after quote from humanists, scientists, philosophers. You can read stories about wealthy people who all their lives rejected God, come to the moment of their mortality, and, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, he's holy. Now, Jesus, here's what he's done for us. He has delivered us from fear. If you're taking notes, number one, Christ delivers us from fear, namely the fear of death. This is Psalm 34, three through five. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, four. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Christ came, verse 15, to deliver. He is our great deliverer. That's number one. He delivers us from fear, or he's our deliverer, from the fear of death. People are subject to lifelong slavery, to the fear of dying. But Christ can give you lifelong victory over the fear of dying. Do you believe that? You don't have to be afraid. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, times when we're frightened over pain or loss or things like that. I, I don't think any Christian who's being authentic would tell you, oh, yeah, bring it on, baby. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a martyr's complex. We're not talking about someone who, you know, is doing silly things. But we're talking about a peace in our hearts that the gospel has invaded us. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, Matthew 4, 16. To those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them, the light has dawned. And so Christ comes to deliver us from fear. I don't know what makes you afraid. Uh, I don't know what you may be in bondage to tonight, but that is what the idea of deliverance is from the slavery of something. And here it's a slavery to fear. Jesus Christ came to deliver you from that. He doesn't want you, he's not given you a spirit of fear. But by contrast of power, love, and a sound mind. Now think about it this way. If he's not giving me a spirit of fear, then power, love, and a sound mind have something to do with me not being fearful. Power, love, and a sound mind keep me from being fearful. Think about it. Dunamis power, the Holy Spirit working in my life. True love, because love casts out fear, right? There's no fear in love. Perfect love cast out fear and a sound mind means I'm thinking soundly about life and death and reality. I get in trouble when unsound thoughts come into my mind. This is 2 Timothy 1.7 if you're taking notes. God's not given you a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind to combat fearful, irrational thoughts. How do you get a sound mind? Sound doctrine. That's how you get a sound mind. You know what sound means in the Bible? It's, it's the word that, from which we get the idea of hygienic or healthy. That's the Greek word for sound. Healthy thinking produces healthy responses to life. Amen? So he delivers us from fear. This is the work of Christ. And if you look at verse 15, and we're backtracking for a second, because the... The work of Christ in sharing our humanity is to render powerless him who had the power of death. End of verse 14, that is the devil. By the way, Jesus believed in a real devil. He faced the real devil. He said the real devil was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. He's a liar and a murderer. He does not abide in the truth. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The thief comes only to, remember, steal, kill, and destroy. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5, 8. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy or devour. How would he devour somebody? Well, if you think about Peter's own experience, Peter cowered in the face of, you know, fear at the firelight. When the servant girl asked him, you know, aren't you one of them, so forth and so on. And uh, the answers in, in this world to these issues of life and death aren't very uh, exhilarating. During the Second World War, Sir John Lawrence attended what he described as a sort of communist memorial service for Stanislavski. 
in the Moscow Arts Theater. He says, there was a closed coffin on the stage draped in a red flag. The dead man's colleagues came and said goodbye to him in set speeches. One heard some of the world's greatest actors and actresses speaking of their teacher and leader, which should have been a moving occasion, but the experience was empty. I was not at the time a Christian believer, but even so, it stuck with me that communism has nothing to say about death. There was no development of a theme, such as one gets in the prayer book service for the burial of the dead. In the same way, to visit the mausoleum where Lenin lies and where Stalin lay for a few years beside him is for me a disturbing experience, precisely because it has no content, close quote. This is a commentary by Brown on Hebrews, and he's quoting now Bertrand Russell, uh, who was a humanist and uh, anti-God. He says, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on in its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness. It remains only to cherish ere yet the blow fall, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day, to worship at the, str- the shrine his, owns ha- his own hands have built, close quote. And Richard Dawkins, who, you know, is a naturalist, atheist, says DNA just is, and we dance to his, its music. Some people are going to get lucky. Some people are going to lose out, and they'll get a diagnosis, and it's just the nature of DNA. DNA neither knows nor cares. We're just dancing wherever the music takes us, baby. Exhilarating, isn't it? The exhilarating answers of humanism, communism, socialism, naturalism, isms that you could go down a big list, they got nothing. We can do the isms of religion and they've got nothing unless Christ is at the center. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you go back to Judaism, void of Christ, you have no salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you drift, you will drift away from the only thing that can be the anchor of your soul. Got it? That's what he's saying. And so when the first century folks or moderns, contemporaries, they ponder the idea of death, it's a shattering prospect. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection, broke the power of death. For those who are in Christ, these verses vividly portray, quoting one writer, helpless man, the terrified victim of a triple enemy, sin, death, and the devil. Christ met these sinister powers and defeated them. In Christ, death can no longer separate us from God, Romans 8, 37 through 39. Death has no more sting. The grave has lost its power. But some of you may say, but wait a minute. People are still dying. And as far as I know in biblical theology, the devil, you just quoted the verse, Pastor Michael, is still on the prowl. 
I was reading a commentator, and he said that he, before uh, he was a professor, he had a um, mail route. He was a mail person, and uh, he was delivering mail to this house and this huge, vicious dog. He said the most mean-looking dog he'd ever seen in his life came running at him, and he felt like a little helpless victim. What am I going to do now? <laughs> oh, no. And this dog came charging at him and snarling and drool and everything. He thought, I'm done for. And to his great delight, the dog was on a chain. And right before he reached the frightened future commentator, he, he was stopped by this heavy chain. And it was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, I no longer, when I delivered mail for the rest of my time on my route, paid attention to that dog. I always looked at the stake that he was chained to. And if that stake was strong, I knew I was fine. The devil is still uh, barking and growling, but he's on a chain. Everybody with me? He has limited power. And he has lost the stinger or he's lost his bite. He can bark a lot and he tries to frighten people and scare people and all of this. But in the end, he's chained. And Jesus Christ is our great conqueror. Jesus uh, has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy 1.10. And in verse 15, it says, he, Christ has rendered impotent the devil and death's power. While he is still active in the world, he's been defeated. He's all bark, no bite. If you're taking notes, number two, Jesus is our conqueror. The deliverance is real because Jesus became one of us and defeated our enemies. I want to show you a great, section in Isaiah 25, if you hold your place in the book of Hebrews. Maybe we can throw it up on the screen, Shane, if you can for me. Isaiah chapter 25. This is a celebration meal, probably uh, in the millennial kingdom of Christ or the kingdom to come, the redeemed earth. Here's what it says. It says, uh, verse 6 of Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet, 25.6 of Isaiah, for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine, Isaiah 25.7. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, the veil or shroud which is stretched over all nations, 25.8. He will swallow up death, what your Bible say? For all time. This is the realization of death being swallowed up in victory, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And this may be the party that celebrates it. It would appear that in the future, there will be a celebration to celebrate death's demise. Probably a three-layer cake uh, with a, the Grim Reaper on the top with an X through him or something like that. And we will be celebrating. Can you imagine what kind of party you would have on the day that death dies? Can you imagine how much excitement there will be on the day when death dies? Well, what is the day when death dies? When Christ comes again at the resurrection and the rapture of the church. And so here's what the Bible says. It says, uh, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord, and this is probably when it's all going to happen, verses that we've read in Revelation and so forth, the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. 
in light of the fact that death has died and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. And you're like, are you sure? Uh, is it really true? Is it too good to be true? For the Lord has spoken and every word of God is pure and tested. He is the God of truth. Amen? In him, there's no lie. In fact, it's impossible for God to lie. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So this is the beauty of what the writer's saying. He's saying to this early church, hold on, because Christ came into our broken world, became fully human, died in our place, rose from the dead, plucked the stinger from death. The day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Don't you abandon that hope for temporary, perhaps, comfort. You know, some people run away from true hope only to find what they ran to has got nothing. And as I look out at you tonight, I know some of you have backslidden. I'm not saying I know your personal stories, but we have a few people that follow some of you around during the week. I'm just kidding. But I've talked to enough of you and I've experienced it myself where if you try to go back to the world, what is there for you? You know, in the early church, there were actually people who under threat of persecution denied the Lord. This is literal church history. Upon threat of death, deny Christ and we won't kill you. And they denied him. It's a very human thing, right? Which one of us knows what we would do in those kinds of moments? So people, many, many people denied the Lord. And then they regretted it. And they came back to the church and asked for a second chance. And the church, the early church had to wrestle with what to do with these people. Because Many of them had denied the Lord in a moment of pressure and then wanted to come back into the church. Well, what do we do with these people? Well, if Peter was standing at the door, I think he'd welcome them in because he denied the Lord three times that he even knew him. Amen? I think the writer of Hebrews is saying this. If you go somewhere else, you go back fishing, you go back to whatever you think you're going to find answers then. Maybe you came out of the New Age. Maybe you came out of witchcraft. Maybe you came out of atheism. Maybe you came out of some other movement that seems like in this day, at this moment, it might be easier if you just kind of went back there and sat in the back row. But if it's void of Christ, it's void of salvation. If it's void of Christ, then you don't have the solution to the fear of death. You don't have the good news. You don't have the one who is the good news. Now look at verse 16, and this is actually the opening verse of the sermon. <laughs> uh, but we needed all that to set the table. For assuredly, 16 Hebrews 2, he does not give help to angels. Angels have been the subject largely of chapter 1. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, the writer's not saying that, that Jesus doesn't care about angels. Like, yeah, if, if Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel's having a problem, I don't care. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. But salvation, which is the subject of Hebrews chapter two, is not for the angels. He made us in his image. He became one of us. And the help that these believers need to hear about 
is for them. So he doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. One rendering is, it is not, you see, of angels, but of the offspring of Abraham that he takes hold. The, the actual Greek word here for help uh, or to, to give help is the idea of taking hold. And it's a Greek word used when Peter walked on the water in Matthew 14, looked at the waves and began to sink. And he was like, Lord, save me. And Jesus took hold of him and pulled him up. And then, of course, he said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? This is what Hebrews 2 is saying, verse 16. He takes hold of the son of Abraham. Some of you are like, well, wait a minute. I'm not a son of Abraham. Uh, I'm a Gentile. I'm Italian. So as far as I know, I'm not connected to Abraham. But anyone who exercises faith in Jesus Christ is a son of Abraham. That's Galatians 3, I think it's verse 29. If you belong to Christ, Galatians 3, 29, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, because Abraham was a believer prior to the Jewish nation even being started, really. Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. So if you're a believer, you're part of the offspring of Abraham who was a believer. And so here's the assurance. He does give help. Third point in, uh, if you're taking notes, our Lord is our helper and holder. Uh, taking that Greek word of taking hold, he's our helper and our holder. He holds on to us. He takes hold of us and carries us with the idea of deliverance, just like Peter was rescued from drowning. Therefore, in light of this, for this reason, Hebrews 2.17, he had to, some scholars believe the had to there suggests moral obligation. He had to be made like his brothers or his brethren or his brothers and sisters in all things or in every way that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining or in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you're taking notes, number four, he is our merciful mediator. He had to be made like us in every way so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And I was reading someone this week and they said, you know, it's one thing when your wife is in labor to tell her, honey, um, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. Here's a nice chip. Uh, you know, maybe you have to duck every third contraction or whatever. Sorry, you know, I'm a man. But if you were to experience giving birth, which some people in our culture believe that men can now, but that's another story. Um, but if you were to go through the birthing process as a man, you would be a little bit more empathetic to your wife when child number two or three came along because it would be different if you were just saying, it's going to be okay. Do that breathing. <laughs> we took that class. Remember that? Yeah. But if you had been through the pain of it before, your empathy would be completely different. Christ Jesus is a merciful mediator because he entered into our pain, lived the human life, 
died terribly on that cross being rejected and persecuted. He is our merciful high priest. And it sounds like the language here speaks that he was obliged to be so. He was 100% human. This is why we always talk about this. And 100% God. He experienced everything that we experience yet without sin. And for the first time, we have this introduction that he is our merciful, end of verse 17, and faithful. Here's his high priestly ministry. We'll, we'll study more on this, but he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, if you've done any study on the Old Testament, you know the importance of the role of the high priest, especially on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest had to come in there with a sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the people. But much of what he did was symbolic, right? He, he was a man and high priests would be born and they would die. And on the Day of Atonement, it was a big deal and you had to do all things the right way. It was the only time you could enter into the Holy of Holies and that not without blood. And you had to do everything the right way. Otherwise, God might strike you dead and you approach the Holy of Holies. Finally, the curtain opened and you could go you know, where the mercy seat was and apply the blood and all the symbolism of the cross and the holiness of God is there. Jesus Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest who came in with his own blood and offered atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest offered the blood of an animal. Our high priest offers his own blood to his father. Amen? See, he's got a lot of skin in the game. The high priest was doing things with animal blood and symbolism. Of course, there was a, it was a fearful thing. But Jesus Christ shed his own blood because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away my sin. So Christ entered into the most holy place, manifesting mercy, the one who died for us. The son remained, you could say, in nature, God, but in the incarnation, he was also absolutely human. He gives help to those who he can relate to in every way. Thus, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. If you ever have been through something and someone, let's say, uh, offered to pray for you and you said, thanks, I'll take all the prayer I can get. And then they said to you, you know what, just recently I've been through something similar to what you're going through. Doesn't that kind of just go, you just kind of go, Wow, their prayer is a little different. It's not like the prayer of the person who hasn't been through it isn't valuable. But that person who says to you, you know what, I, I have sympathy for you because I understand. Jesus never sinned, but his heart bears the blessed, blessed scars of sympathy. That's from Hughes. Jesus never sinned. He's fully human, but his heart bears the blessed scars of sympathy. That's why he says, cast all your care to me because I care for you. Jesus went through all that we go through as humans. He felt disappointment, sorrow, physical pain, hunger. Uh, he was fatigued. He became angry. He was grieved. He was troubled. He was overcome by the prospect of future events. He exercised faith. He read the scriptures. He prayed. He sighed in his heart when he saw another man's illness. He sighed and cried when he saw death. He's experienced everything that we could experience. He took the full weight of all that we face. 
the, the opposition of sinful men, falsely accused, betrayed by a friend, etc. And here's the key, I think, from the, the standpoint of our looking at the theology of the passage, is the very last part of 17. He's a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Number four, he's a merciful mediator. Number five, he is our perfect priestly, <laughs> how about this? Our perfect priestly propitiator. <laughs> Say that five times fast, go. What does a propitiation mean? Simply put, whenever you see that word, it means a satisfaction or an appeasement of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ propitiates or satisfies God's holy wrath against sin and removes it. The word for propitiate, propitiate from F.F. Bruce means to put away divine wrath. He met it and he put it away. God made an open public, uh, put him on display as a satisfaction of God's wrath on the cross. This is how much he loves us. This is how much he cares for us. And this is how much he understands us. Final verse. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The NIV says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The idea of the language here, he is able to help, is a nautical term, and it actually comes from sea life or shipping, and it has the idea of stabilizing. He's able to stabilize us in the storm. We'll talk more about this in Hebrews chapter 4. The word he is able to help has the idea he is a succor. He, is, he brings aid. In the idea of stabilizing us, he keeps us from spiritual collapse. Right now on Walking Truth Radio, we're airing the scene of Moses up on the hill and Joshua's fighting the Amalekites down below. And as long as Moses had his hands up, they were winning. And when Moses' hands began to drop, I remember saying in that sermon, uh, if you've ever tried to keep your hands up the whole time during one song, you ever tried that before? Oh, your hands get heavy, right? It doesn't take much. One song, let's say one four or five minute song with your hands up the whole time, you're pretty much exhausted. Well, there's Moses and he's an old dude and he gets some help, right? He sits down on a rock and Aaron and her are up there and they're holding up his hands and as long as his hands are up, they're winning. As long, but it's the moment he begins to collapse under the weight, they lose. The way that you appropriate the help is you keep your hands up. Jesus is our great high priest. He's paid our ransom. He's appeased God's wrath. He intercedes for us, but he wants us to reach up to keep us from spiritually collapsing. And that's what was happening to this group of Christians. They were on the verge of collapse. You ever been there before? Maybe you're there right now. It can be tiring. It can be hard to keep on fighting the good fight, especially when things collapse around you, especially when you have questions, especially when you, you face loss or hatred of the culture or whatever it may be. What do you do then? 
Well, Jesus, look at the verse, was tempted in that which he suffered. When do you think Jesus' greatest temptation took place? In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, we know those three temptations, right? And the devil said, well, go ahead and take a shortcut and create some bread or go ahead and force a miracle and jump down or go ahead and bow just for a moment and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have the crown without the cross. Doesn't that sound great? Three easy payments of $29.99 and you'll learn this language in six weeks? Whoa, really? I always wanted to roll my R's and say, Arrivederci or whatever it may be. Yeah, that sounds great. The problem is shortcuts never work. The only people getting rich are the ones getting your credit card number late at night for $29.99. It's very easy for them. A little harder on you. Jesus Christ suffered in, what he was, in that which he was tempted. Did he suffer some out in the wilderness? 40 days of fasting? Sure. Did he suffer when Peter says, oh no, you're never going to that cross. Get behind me, Satan. Did he suffer in unrecorded times when surely the devil was trying to do things to upend his ministry, manifesting in demonic presences? How many times do you read in your Bible Jesus casting out demons left and right? How about false you know, associations like people who say, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go, will you? How about in John 6 when he preaches a hard sermon and most of the people leave and walk away? Talk about the opposite of church growth, right? But you know, Jesus's probably most painful moments of temptation and suffering coalescing are in the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. Because in the garden, Jesus cries, Father, if it's possible, please remove this cup from me. You could put it this way. I don't want to drink that. What was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath. It was the cup of suffering. It was the cup of shame. It was the cup of being on that cross and being pinned to it and having no options to move and hopefully you can get yourself up for a breath. And prior to that, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's on the cross, he's praying three times fervently. And Luke tells us one uh, way to take the, the verses in Luke is that he's sweating out of his pores blood because he feels so much pressure. Tiny capillaries are bursting under his skin because he feels the weight of the cross coming, which would be the next day. I don't know how you would handle it, but that would be a whole lot of pressure. And then on the cross, people walking by, <laughs> you, you said you'd destroy the temple and rebuild it. You, who said you're the son of God, just come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. You want to talk about a temptation when you have the power to come down from the cross and say, oh yeah? <laughs> okay, pipsqueak, I'm going to show you some power now. And he suffered and suffered. Why? One primary reason. You know what it is? For your redemption. And to the little Hebrew church, the writer of Hebrews says, you, you better take another look. Yeah, 
you may be going through some suffering and no, I will not minimize anyone's suffering. But please don't forget what your Savior did for you. Your merciful and faithful high priest. Your great propitiator. Your great comforter. The one who is able to help you. That's the last point. He is able to help. Kind of sandwiching those two points there. As the olive press came down on him, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he said, it is finished. Oh, Father, thank you for the encouragement of Hebrews 2. Jesus, thank you that you endured so much for us. And when we're feeling poured out, uh, we're, we're called in Hebrews 12 to look again to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you that you finished what you started. Lord, there are many times when we get exhausted, we want to give up, we feel like giving up, but my prayer is that you would keep us strong, you would keep us stabilized, keep us from spiritual collapse, keep our eyes fixed on you. We know that you're able to keep us from falling. Help us to continue to reach up to you, reach out to you, and find strength for today, wherever we may be on this journey. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.